So, uh, so I'll give you a few minutes to uh, move around and to uh, adjust yourselves. And Mama, that bottom left white button over there, if you want to turn me down just a little bit. The first uh, bottom, that's your other left. There we go. All the way to the left. The bot, there we go. Turn me down. Just, there we go. That's much better. Thank you. There you go. Now's your chance. So uh, I used to uh, I used to do this occasionally when um, the class I taught in here, uh, oh gosh, ten years or so ago, met, and uh, I would just move, and uh, it gives me a different perspective. And the point I want to make is that as we go through some very familiar texts this morning, uh, including some that we went over partially last week, um, I want you to look at it with hopefully a, a bit of a fresh perspective. And I want you to picture, well, I don't know how you'll picture it. I'll tell you in a little while how I picture this uh, as Paul, um, a pastor among other things, but uh, trying to get his people's attention to look at things in a fresh way. So, um, so that's going to be our focus, and we're going to pick up a little bit, um, touching briefly on uh, some of the last verses of chapter 1. Uh, Daddy covered some elements of this last week, and, and we'll cover them uh, a little bit differently and then move on into chapter 2. Uh, before I do that, I will say that uh, uh, the website is updated, uh, so finally um, caught up with uh, some of those teachings, and uh, I think we're up to 30 or so uh, lessons that have been posted, and um, then uh, also I added on the side, uh, uh, we can, this website lets us follow other podcasts, so if you go there, you'll see some some. Uh, opportunities to, to listen to other uh, respected teachers, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, John Piper, and others, that uh, Chuck Swindoll, you know, you can click there and, and uh, if you want some, some extra content. All right. Um, first of all, uh, let's pick up with verse 16 again. And here Paul says, um, I do not cease to give thanks for you. This is chapter 1. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So now we're going to hear, what is it that Paul wants to pray for his people? He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And he's going to talk about some things that he wants us to know. And if... I don't know if there's, a, um, if there's a theme for this lesson, but if there were to be a theme, I would say it's the things he wants us to know. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, people will share something and you'll say, wow, that's good to know. Well, these are things that they're good to know. And Paul wants us to really um, understand and, and he, he wants to, to teach and he says, there's some things that I'm praying that you know. Um, he prays, first of all, that we get a spirit of wisdom and revelation 
in the knowledge of Christ. So what would it mean, and this is going to be a series of questions that you may want to uh, just think about in the coming week. What would it mean to us if we really knew Jesus? What would it mean in our daily walk if we really knew Jesus? What would it mean to respond to critics the way that Jesus might? What would it mean to forgive those who have hurt us the way that Jesus might? What would it mean to uh, encourage um, some immature believers as as Jesus did? What would it mean to uh, counter uh, the prevailing arguments of the day the way that Jesus did? What would it mean if we really knew Jesus? And the whole point, or one of the whole points of him coming, of course, to to pay the substitutionary atonement for us, but also we're told that this is the way we understand God, by looking at Jesus. So one of Paul's first prayers is that that we can have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. One commentator says, philosophy says, know thyself, whereas Christianity says, know God through Jesus Christ. So Paul wants us to know Jesus. Next he says, verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called you? So next question is, what is the impact of the hope that you have in Christ? Uh, another teacher commented that uh, to pay attention to the, the timing, to the, the, the tense, so to speak, of these words. So it says, the hope to which you have been called. So this has already happened. We've been called. It's already happened. So the reason that we can have hope is because of what's already happened in the past. All right? And you'll see he moves forward and backward in time in this passage. So think about that. What is the impact of the hope that we have in Christ? We can hope that with good confidence that things are going to turn out well, as Paul elaborates in Romans, that that even bad things, even things that we don't understand, can somehow in God's sovereign will be worked toward the greater good. Uh, for others and for ourselves. What about this hope that we can start to lay claim to? We've talked about this inheritance that we've got, uh, that we can look forward to, that we can just get a taste of now. He goes on, he says, I want you to know what are the riches of this glorious inheritance. What would it mean if we really started to live as Dad focused a lot on this passage lastly, we live below our privilege, I think was the word. We're living way below our privilege. Um, the um, the uh, movie, the remake, Annie, is coming out where this orphan all of a sudden gets exposed to lots of privilege. 
in some ways, we are that already. We already have access to power and riches and resources that um, we're just haven't opened our eyes to it. And uh, part of our work through the scriptures is to is to mine those those riches. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have? This is something that um, the inheritance is something that we haven't fully laid claim to. So in contrast to the hope that's based on what's in the past, here we have expectation of what we're going to get, that not the way they're going to be forever, that we can look forward to things being even better than they are now. He says the next thing he wants to pray for us to know in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. And again, Daddy Daddy covered this, but this is present tense. What are the implications of knowing that the God of the universe is for us, is on our side right now? He is for us. He's for us. He is for us. That's something just to think about. You know, we, we say almost in a cliche form, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what does that really mean? What does it mean for to know that no matter what's going on, you know, God's for me. God's for me. Huge. This is something that Paul desperately wants us to know. There's a passage, um, and John will actually look at it, where Jesus says, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I think this is um, one of the things that, that Paul is trying to get home to these people, that you know, there are some truths that you guys just are not laying hold of. And it's going to make a big, big difference. Look at all these things. I want you to know this. 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 This is your current state. And then I and this is kind of where I picture him. I can almost see him saying, as as he's maybe visualizing people who are hearing this, and it's like you know, I still don't, I don't think they're getting it. I don't I don't. I don't think they're quite getting it. It's, it's almost like he says, wait, wait a minute. All right, let's go back. Let's go back and let's remember what you were. So that brings us to chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, this is how you are now. Don't you remember? You were dead. The punchline's coming in verse 4 when we're not dead anymore. We said you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Um, this, is a, this is a verse you could spend a lot of time on um, about our, our state prior to becoming Christians, prior to that mysterious transaction happening of when we go from being dead to being alive. Um, we've touched on off and on in our teaching uh, reform theology, and uh, this is um, 
this is a verse that is uh, a key part of Reformed theology, that um, if you are spiritually dead, if you're really dead, then, then you really have no ability to, to participate, so to speak, in your own salvation. You're dead. Um, anybody uh, see Princess Bride, the movie? It's been out about 27, 28 years. Love that movie. It's probably one of the more quoted movies of all time. Uh, but there's this one part where, um, where the main character, uh, Wesley, uh, gets captured by one of the king's henchmen and, and laid on this rack and literally has the life sucked out of him with this big suction cup thing. They suck the life out of him and finally his his buddies find him and gather him up and take him to Mad Max, who is played by Billy Crystal, and he's laid out on the thing and is like, he's, he's dead, what can you do for him? He said, well, he's just mostly dead. <laughs> and mostly dead is different. Well, here, we weren't mostly dead. We were dead. And this is, this is really where one of the... Um, one of the differences comes in to uh, Reformed theology and something called semi-Pelagian theology, which don't even, don't even think that you heard that term. But um, the, the story goes like this, that, that some people would say, you are on death's door. You're laid out in the ICU. There is medicine available that can help you, but you don't even have the strength to reach for the medicine. So the nurse comes in and parts your lips and pours the medicine in, and all you have to do is swallow it. This would be the view that says there's hardly any effort. It's all God. The medicine's God. The the fact that the nurse is there is God. The, the fact that she's giving it to you is, is God. Um, but you still have to swallow. The reformers would take a much more black and white view and say, you're dead. The doctor walks in like the movies and actually injects you and forces the medicine in and then brings you back to life. That would be the reformed view. Don't want to dwell on that more than I already have, but spiritually, we were dead. And this whole transaction is all about grace. And, you know, fellowshipping, believing Christians can, can differ on some of these great points, as there are many points where, where Bible-believing Christians can can have some wiggle room there, and I'm comfortable with all that. But it says here, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Uh, so there wasn't really anything that we could bring to the party, so to speak. So let's, let's evaluate these next statements. We were dead. How did we walk? Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Uh, when you're, uh, I, I've never seen it, but I know for a while, maybe it's still on, there was this show called The Walking Dead, and apparently zombies are a big thing. 
for the last few years. It's all about zombies. I don't know what that's about, but um, The Walking Dead. And so if you think of us as being zombies, so to speak, where we're dead, but we're walking through life, we're spiritually dead. It says, we walked following the course of this world. So when you see the craziness on TV and all the weirdness that's going on, and you wonder, you know, why are these people acting this way? Well, the, the better question is, why wouldn't you expect them to act this way? Right? Uh, it would be expected that there would be corruption. It would be expected that there would be selfishness. It would be expected that there would be evil. And it's only through the concept of what's called common grace, this widespread grace that, that God gives that keeps people in check. You know, through common grace we have, um, we have laws, which are the echoes of, of God's laws. And we have, we have structure and we have authority and some of those institutions and generally places where God's people have had the most influence are the areas that have the most residual grace, the common grace that even non-Christians benefit from in terms of safety and security and so forth. But these people, we were... You know, when you see people doing crazy stuff, you shouldn't be surprised. How would you expect a non-Christian to act? I mean, it's, and it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. We walked basically in disobedience, in conscious rebellion against God. And then look at who we followed. Verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is? Who is that? That's Satan. We were following Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So Paul is saying, you know, to the Jews who were there, um, that means you too. That means me too. We were all doing this. We were all following Satan. I don't know if we really think about that, that before we were saved, we were following Satan. Maybe not actively, but, but in effect we were. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This concept of power probably resonated a lot with the Ephesians. Uh, Ephesus and the general area there, of course we know, or we suspect Paul wrote to many churches there, but, but certainly the city of Ephesus was a center of power, financial power, political power. You could kind of picture almost like the capital of a city, if not the capital of a region. A lot of stuff was going on here, a lot of influence. This is where the the big pockets were, this is where the the decision makers were. So when he talks about power here, it's probably going to resonate a little bit. Who did we live with? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and the carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Uh, we, we were in amongst all of this stuff. And then what was our nature? It says, 
And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Um, children of wrath. We were not just apart from God, but we were anti-God before we were saved. There really wasn't anything within us that would make us inclined. And then one writer says Ephesians 2 verse 4 has the most his most favorite word in the entire Bible or two words but God all of that stuff was going on but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead made us alive by grace You've been saved. And we'll pick up there next week. So what's this mental image I talked about? The image I have is almost like somebody coming over and saying, Rabbits, I want you to get this. I want you to know what it is that I'm talking about. Because I think it's going to make a difference in your life. I mentioned John 8. Verse 31 of John 8 So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Get this. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he goes on and talks about being a slave to sin, and, you know, that it's not because of your position with Abraham that you're saved, but, you know, it's, it's being my disciple. And, he goes on down, verse 39, and says, They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And they said, We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen to this. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, there are a lot of ways to picture this great division between death and light, between darkness and light, between death and life. Um, good, bad, so forth, but one of the most critical is the difference between lies and truth. And I think that's why Paul, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wants to let people, his prayer, it's not that they will be physically rich, it's not that they'll be physically or socially of status, it's not any of those things, he wants them to know. He just wants them to know 
And as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. I find it very interesting. It's only taken about 2,200 years, but psychology is starting to catch up with the Bible a little bit. It's taken a while. I believe all truth is God's truth, right? And there are people who uncover, in spite of themselves sometimes, true things about the world we live in, the way, the way God has made us. Um, I was reviewing a while back some concepts of, of psychology, and one of the more popular um, uh, streams of psychology nowadays has to do with what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And the reason it's become popular is because it is fairly effective Listen to, uh, this is our classic Wikipedia definition. Listen to this. Now that you have your spiritual sunglasses on, that you can hear this and see this through the right filter. Mainstream cognitive behavioral therapy assumes that changing maladaptive thinking leads to a change in affect, that's mood, and behavior. Changes in maladaptive thinking can lead to changes in affect and behavior. Changes in the way we think can lead to changes in the way we behave. One of my favorite passages, one I kind of, I don't know that I would call what I do in the office counseling, but, but there are sections of it and we'll, we'll get to this, but it's worth doing more than once. In Philippians 4, it talks a lot about anxiety. And very often I will, if I'm seeing Christians who are anxious, I'll, I'll have them meditate on Philippians chapter 4. And there's this great passage there where it says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. I don't think it's any accident that that piece of advice comes in the chapter that says don't be anxious. You can't tell yourself not be anxious. But you can divert your thinking and change your thinking by thinking about something different. The substitution principle. I think it's interesting, he doesn't say go to church, it doesn't even say read your Bible, although those are both good things. It could be anything, it could be listening to really good music, it could be going to an art museum, it could be um, baking a cake you're going to give away. Um, it says, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is saying, I want you to know. Jesus is saying, the truth can set you free. So when we're bogged down in things that aren't going our way and conflict we can't figure out and so forth, if we, if we think, okay, God is for me. Things are going to work out. By faith, I can claim some of that inheritance ahead of time. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. I saw this on the table as I left the house. 
a headline. Panthers soak in victory. See that? It's a little pun there because I think it was a little damp. <laughs> but what if it says Christians soak in victory? What would it mean to really think about your position in Christ, where your inheritance is, who your daddy is, what riches, what resources. And in the context of this lesson, what are the distorted patterns of thinking that you've picked up from the whispers of the person who is all about the lie? How does Satan influence a believer? The same way he influences a non-believer. Whispers lies in your ear. You're not good at that. You're not smart enough to do that. That's too scary. What will people think? You don't know enough. You're not strong enough. And on it goes. They were mean to me. All those things that are going on in your head, all saying, look, think about this other stuff. The truth will set you free. The answer is all about knowing the right stuff, believing the right stuff, and making it real. All right, I guess I'll pause there. Comments? How do you like this angle of the room? All right? All right, let's pray. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you have given us the truth in Scripture, that we can trust it. I thank you for people like Paul that you were able to use to the Holy Spirit to, to write the stuff down that we need to hear, that we can replace all of the lies that we've been exposed to with the truth, that you are our daddy, that you are for us. We thank you for Jesus, our big brother, who saved us. And for the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us. In Jesus' name, amen.